Filmmakers, it's time to use Soldo. Soldo is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees and production assistants when in prep, on set or in post-production. Soldo is a multi-user expense account that helps you control business spending. You can give Soldo cards to some or every employee, to entire teams or even contractors instantly. Transfer funds to all card holders and you can use Soldo for free for three months with the code FilmmakersPod. Soldo.com. Listen for more info in today's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. The Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk Filmmaking From indie films to studio films And everything in between And how to get them made How to make them And how to not Try to (laughs) (laughs) How to try not to fuck up the intro Exactly (laughs) Exactly I did did the intro fine last time But somebody wasn't recording It wasn't, and Dom's really upset with me because yeah. he thought he was really funny. And Giles is under a duvet as well, just to just to set set the scene. I am under a duvet <laughs> in Ipswich, just so you know, in an echoey room. So I've gone under a duvet. It's still quite echoey. You can't see me, but I'm I'm visibly annoyed at, at, at the, <laughs> the the last five minutes fun not being recorded. Uh, today on the show we are with the Duke filmmakers, producer Nikki Bentham and screenwriters Richard Bean and Clive Coleman. Although technically we we weren't with them (laughs) because what happened Giles? We weren't. So I couldn't make the actual recording of this because I was making films myself but I did go to the screening with Dom of The Duke which is out now starring Helen Mirren and Jim Broadbent. And we did have a lovely time there, to be, to be fair. We, we had an interesting uh, a butler scenario. Uh, so oh. I, I, <laughs> I ordered a, uh, a fresh mint tea uh, for two. At the screening, by the way. I wasn't there yet. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a treat, a treat for Giles. I thought, why not? I'll, 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 I'll sell, my, sell my kidney and get a, a fresh mint tea at the hotel. And the guy, the guy sort of was being very mannerly and, and said, uh, no, 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 follow me. And I was like, well, I'm in the screening room. He's like, uh, no problem. Uh, so into a, into a packed room full of very serious reporters in waltz uh, <laughs> you with your own butler walking behind yeah, you and, my, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i got to say uh, just set it down there please silverware and everything it was a it was a magnificent thing and, and it almost made it worthwhile when giles suddenly threw on to me that i'd be recording my second solo uh, outing as a host on the, the Filmmakers Podcast. Because the first one was with Alice Eve, yeah, and now here's your second one. Yeah, slightly less pressure, but slightly longer episodes. So maybe it, maybe it evens out, who knows? Maybe it does. Yeah, that was funny, because when I arrived in the in the cinema, and it's, by the way, so, you know, to set the scene, if you ever go to one of these press junkets, these press screenings, it's very quiet. It's not like you go to normal cinema and people are eating popcorn and chatting away and on the phones. It's like silence. <laughs> You walk in and no one's talking. <laughs> yeah, no. What was the one where we went to and we just giggled? Um, Serrano, wasn't it? Oh, we were yes. just at the front because yeah, yeah. it was so quiet. And yeah. we just like children at the front, like giggling idiots. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the, the Duke, we did get to see it in a cinema, in the cinema screening. And um, Dominic kept 
Dominic. And Dom kept pouring me green tea throughout, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you. Yeah, it was very nice. It was a uh, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, oh, it's such a lovely date I had with you. Yes. Yeah. Now joining me is is my co-host. <laughs> Which is me, Charles Alderson. <laughs> yeah. I'm the co-host today. Yay! I'm not the co-host because I'm just doing the intros. Well, yeah, you're, okay, you're, you're the intro co-host. <laughs> that's, that's like another level down. Not down in more effect. <laughs> Thanks, you'll be making short films like Tobias. Yeah. <laughs> just, just for anyone that hasn't been following the other episodes, Giles uh, has an ongoing joke at, at Tobias for his short filmmaking. So uh, we have nothing against short films. Maybe Giles does. Nothing. But. At all, yeah. by the way. No, I yeah. do not. I love people who make sure that's how I started. But uh, yeah, he's going to cut that anyway. You better not. Don't so cut it, Jit, to my What did you talk about, Dom, on your solo interviews? Because it was three people, two screenwriters, and the producer, Nikki Bentham, who, by the way, has produced uh, a load of short films. Jonas won't be watching those. <laughs> uh, the Silent Storm, she produced, which is starring Damien Lewis, uh, You Can Tutu, and... Uh, the Duke and also uh, her upcoming film Who Killed the KLF and also the screenwriters they are Richard Bean and Clive Coleman and they are massive theatre writers and I was gutted I couldn't do this uh, interview with Dom because I'm a big fan of their work what did you talk about and what, what can our audience learn from your chat with Nikki because they, they better learn something otherwise you're going to be relegated back to intro co-host i spoke to her about working with and attaching actors like jim broadbent and helen miriam i spoke to her about developing an existing story into a script producing a big film like this one and nikki's journey into producing there you go so it sounds like you will learn something because dom seems uh <laughs> to be asking the right <laughs> questions there let's see on, on first impressions you you might get that get that idea <laughs> let's see let us know tweet us uh, at filmmakers pod speaking of which you can find us there or on instagram as well the filmmakers podcast do come follow us do follow the wrap up we do the wrap up every sunday and it's basically the weekly news the latest happenings in the indie filmmaking world if there's a studio setting up new funds for filmmakers we put it all in the wrap up if giles has a new film out yeah that <laughs> will be in there believe me speaking of which the stranger in our bed uh, will be out later this year but that won't be in the wrap-up yet. Oh, I'm delivering Wolves of War as well at the moment, doing all the final tweaks right now on Wolves of War, baby! Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. I've just finished uh, delivering When the Screaming Starts for sales and distribution. When the Screaming Starts did so well at Fright Fest, I loved it. Absolutely brilliant. We'll have to get Connor on the podcast when that comes out as well, won't we, the director oh, of that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Not to be confused with Conair, although often I do call him Conair. You're very punny. Speaking of directors, the director of The Duke, of which this podcast is about, and like I say, The Duke is out in cinemas now. I loved it. I thought it was really brilliant. Uh, the director is Roger Michel, who sadly died late last year, so he didn't get to see the release of this movie but he's directed such incredible films as Notting Hill uh, Venus uh, which I love that movie Enduring Love and the upcoming Elizabeth uh, documentary as well all about Queen Elizabeth we'd certainly like to express our condolences and, and I think this is a this is a fantastic you know heartfelt film to, to remember him by Dom how would you describe The Duke I'd say it's a dramatic and comedic but utterly true telling of a fascinating real story uh, about a family up north who went through an incredible journey. And I won't say any more to spoil it. Then, without further ado, 
Let's get to it. Dom Lenoir's second solo outing as co-host. <laughs> as solo host. It is Dom Lenoir chatting to the wonderful and lovely and talented producer, Nikki Bentham. Welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. It's a absolute pleasure to be chatting. We managed to see the film last uh, last week, uh, and it was incredibly funny, very touching, very human, uh, and more impressive that it's based on a, a true story. So, uh, how are you doing? How's all the the release stuff going for you? Yeah, I mean, it's going really well, and I guess more than anything, it's just so nice to finally be sharing it with audiences because obviously our release has been a little bit delayed due to mm. COVID. And I think when you make a film that's that's all about community and about people kind of coming together for the greater good, uh, it's, you know, and, and also that's got, you know, so many laughs in it. All, all you really want is to kind of sit down with a packed out cinema and enjoy it. So yeah. it's, um, it's been a long time coming, but it's really great that we've finally made it to this moment. Yeah, we managed to see it in the, the Soho, Soho Hotel. <laughs> And it was such a nice experience just to be surrounded by people. And, and it is that kind of film where it's it's great to sort of come together and laugh together and, you know, enjoy that kind of humanity. So, so how did how did COVID affect things? Like when was the did you shoot through COVID or was it before? No, it we actually finished shooting um, a couple of weeks before the first lockdown. So it was end of February 2020. We finished. Um, we wrapped and, you know, I mean, I think back to that moment and uh, that that time we just had no idea what was around the corner, of course. I remember when we were on the shoot, in fact, you know, we were up in Leeds and Bradford in our kind of set world, you know, very yeah. focused on the shooting. And, and the VFX supervisor kind of came up from London for a few days and, and was just talking about this virus from China. And like yeah. none of us had actually even been reading the paper we were sort of so busy and we were like what are, you, what are you talking about so that was i guess kind of another world but we um we wrapped the shoot and then um and then edited it remotely through through the lockdown and were meant to release later that year and we did manage to get to venice for the world premiere mm. um but our then our um us premiere at Telluride was delayed and then obviously our, our UK release has been delayed until now. And did you did you have to do any pickups or was it all kind of straightforward based no, on... No, fortunately we didn't have to do any pickups and that's really down to the sort of amazing preparation and mm. decisiveness of Roger Michelle who was always very, very clear about his choices of coverage and and you know he was editing the film in his head as we were shooting yeah so i think we were we were very lucky that we didn't need to do that and he you know he has a, a really look well he he had a, a really loyal team of mm. um his cinematographer and editor that he that you know they had a, a real shorthand with so well that's a big big tick for both of you then I, I mean i remember when when covid was like first being mentioned i was i was in la and it was just uh, some of the the flights from china were being sort of siphoned off and they're like oh covid and it was just sort of a an anecdote and then you know a, a week later uh, you know flying back and it's you know full lockdown and it suddenly becomes such a serious thing and it's it's uh, certainly a 
a big thing to contend with when you're in a production, but you're, it's amazing you managed to get the uh, the shooting out of the way. So that's a big plus. Going back to the start of the project, how did it all begin for you? So the beginning for me was back in 2013. I got... Wow an email uh, out of the blue from a gentleman called Christopher Bunton, who told me that he had this incredible story in his family. And he just sort of, you know, uh, attached a, a paragraph synopsis of, you know, the main details of it and said, you know, I think this, this could be a movie. What do you think? And it was a brilliant paragraph. I mean, I, it was, I, I, it was such a, fascinating, funny and um, incredible story. And I thought, well, that sounds great. But I mean, obviously that can't be true. He must be sort of embellishing something somewhere. So I did a bit of research and it actually all checked out. And I was just... I was just amazed that this was a true story that people didn't really know about that had kind of been sort of brushed under the carpet by the authorities at the time. And then the family had chosen not to, not to talk about it publicly either. So it was just um, a real sort of hidden gem. So I, I jumped on it straight away and um, through various conversations with the Bunton family and a few trips up and down to Newcastle managed to, um, to arrange with them that I would, uh, I would work with them to bring it to the screen. I mean, it is it is quite a remarkable story. And I remember when I was, you know, I sort of went into the screening blind because I, I like to do that sometimes and, and be surprised. And uh, I, I was thinking like, this is just, you know, is, is this is this possible? Like some of the, some of the things that happened are, are so amazing and impressive, um, especially considering the sort of the, you know, the, the down to earth nature of the family and, and this huge thing that they, they managed to, to pull off. And, and I think that's 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 pretty amazing. So, it's just an irresistible story, really. So how did that development process go um, from initially chatting to the, the family and then you know, did they sort of get involved in the treatment stage or how did that process no, work? No, I mean, what actually happened was that Chris Bunton had in fact written a script based on the story and he works in tech in New York. So I think the fact that he sat down and actually wrote a script from beginning to end is completely remarkable. Mm. So hats off to him for doing that. But what I said to him from the very beginning is that I felt like this project, um, you know, was going to need some scale and a lot of mm. expertise. And that if he was really serious about doing this, then I think we needed to sort of put his script to one side and find professional writers to, I mean, not, <clears throat> not just because, you know, obviously we want the best writing possible, but also I think it's very difficult, even for a professional writer, it's very difficult to write about their own, their own yeah. family and their own story. Because of objectivity, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I said to Chris, I think it's really important that we find someone that can actually, you know, stand back and look at this whole story, um, clear eyed and then put together the script. And so I, um, once I had sort of, 
had the rights and, and done the deal with the family. I then talked to Pathé about it because it felt like it was very much within their wheelhouse of British true stories, feel good, uplifting, um, underdog tale. And so I took it. I mean, really, it was it was the first um, the first call that I made, and they were similarly bowled over by by the story. And so came on board to um, develop it with me from that point on. And we brought on uh, Richard Bean and Clive Coleman to write the script, who just felt like an absolutely perfect pair for it as well, because um, both of them have a background writing comedy and for theatre. Richard Bean sort of best known for One Man, Two Governors, his play. Clive is a former barrister who also used to be the BBC's legal correspondent. And because we had such an enormous archive of of source material to get through in in the research and development stage, you know, we had court transcripts, we had Kempton's memoirs, we had Kempton's plays, we had uh, newspaper articles, and also the, the National Archives had like a thousands and thousands of pages of all the kind of the legal paperwork and the police reports and the ransom notes. And I mean, just so much. Mm. So it felt like actually having, having Richard and Clive, having, you know, both of them with their sort of slightly different experience and slightly different perspectives kind of come together to work on it was absolutely perfect and, and how did you um in in terms of what was the actual story and and what was added maybe from the development process with with Pathé and yourself and, and the director and how closely did you stick to things what what did you sort of adapt and to be honest there's very little that's added i think wow. the biggest task was what we had to take away because in actual fact the um you know the story took place over a period of about four or five years that the right. painting was actually hidden in the cupboard for four years right and so we felt like we needed to condense the timeline a bit mm. and also i mean there were some things that that happened in in real life that we just thought was so absurd that they were like too unbelievable to even like it was too it was just too much and so we did really have to simplify and and streamline things um just to kind of keep it moving and keep the humor and the pace and and you know there were just so many twists and turns in the real story that you know probably probably could have made like an epic series of it all but um but we wanted to yeah, we wanted to condense it. Um, so I think what you see as the script, you know, I, I guess it's easy It's easy to think that, oh, well, that's sort of what happened and the writers just had to kind of transpose. But, mm. but actually the process of navigating, you know, all the details of the true story and then pulling out, you know, all of the best bits that are both from the side of the the legal authorities establishment side as well as the family drama and what you know what they were going through in dealing with their own grief and their own challenges um was really um it, it was a heroic effort on behalf of the writers i have to say yeah and and how did how did the the casting and uh, getting the director on board was that down to you or was it uh, how did that process work really from <laughs> the from the get-go we really had jim 
broadbent in mind to play Kempton Bunton. And obviously mm. you've you've seen the film now, so you've you've probably seen a photo of the real Kempton. It's hard to imagine anyone else actually. And know a bit about his character. So I guess you can kind of see how Jim is just such perfect casting. And it's always a little bit scary when you are developing a project and you know trying to imagine how it's going to look and what the casting might be like. And, and your casting mm. list has one person on it because obviously that's a, that's a very narrow target. But um, yeah. as we were developing the script um, and talking to, I remember I was, I was um, talking to a few agents and as we were looking for a director and one way or another, Jim caught wind of the project and mm. knew that we had actually, um, that we had sort of had him in mind. And so he was very interested. And then we went to Roger Michelle, who actually, I mean, Roger and Jim kind of uh, share, share an agent's talent agency. So we went to Roger and uh, when he came on board, he said, look, I'll, I'll do it if Jim does it. And Jim said, I'll do it if Roger does it. So amazing. Um, yeah. So they sort of, they came together as a, as a brilliant pair. The next task was to find uh, Dorothy Bunton. And um, we had thought that Helen would be spectacular, but obviously it's, not the sort of role we're used to seeing her in. We're kind of, we're so used to seeing her in a, in an amazing gown, often mm. with a, often with a crown on her head or something. And um, sort of to, to conceive of her as a domestic cleaner from Newcastle, no makeup, very kind of, you know, pedestrian working class woman was, um, was a leap. And we didn't know if she'd be interested in it, but um, she just responded to the script immediately and loved the writing and, and really understood the depths and of this, this character. And I think that for me, it was really, really important that we had, that we had a really strong, fierce actor in that role as Dorothy Bunton, because of course it is primarily Kempton's story, but the whole family was, you know, glued together and and she was really the backbone of the whole family and the whole story. I mean, none of this would have happened without Dorothy. And I think that um, perhaps the sort of the history books and and the newspaper articles and the official reports would have forgotten Dorothy and um, what a strong matriarch and an important part she had. Yeah, no, I mean she she is she is a huge a huge part of the film and she is a real driving force on screen. And I think it was a real inspired casting choice, and, and I think it's a great example that you know if you're going for someone uh, you know really different for the role sometimes it can be very appealing to them because it's something they haven't done and it's not always the case that they'll want to exactly and she was completely game like just up for it all and um yeah. so you know and then and then bringing jim and helen together they've not actually worked together before so oh, wow. um it was just a, a huge 
honor to watch them do their thing so so just to wrap up could you quickly tell us uh, a very short redacted version of what the film's about and when we can watch it please sure uh, the film the duke is about the uk's first art heist which was a theft um, from the national gallery of the duke of wellington portrait by goya in 1961 it disappeared from the national gallery it turned up in the uh, wardrobe of a Geordie bus driver named Kempton Bunton, who held the painting to ransom for the greater good. And it's a hugely warm and witty, uplifting tale that uh, you will not believe is true, but is 100% the real deal. And it's uh, in UK cinemas from the 25th of February. So I really hope that um, everyone gets along to the cinemas to finally enjoy it as a, you know, as a communal experience, because it's very much about community and looking out for each other and, and how uh, one person can really make a difference. Will the defendant please stand? Kempton Bunton, you were charged that on the 21st of March, 1961, you stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco Jose de Goya. Not very good, is it? We're convinced that the Goya has been stolen by a highly professional international criminal gang. Mind your bloomers! Almost certainly a trained commando. <laughs> You're right. Bitter biscuit. One problem. What's up? Your mother. I can explain. I'm shaking. It's the shock. Shock, yes, I'm shocked. There's a stolen masterpiece in my wardrobe. What's he actually asking for? £140,000. For what? Charity. Good grief. I'm living with a madman. I'm tackling social injustice. I'm like Robin Hood. You're an idiot. The taxpayer paid for that bin. They could have given thousands to war widows and pensioners. It's for the greater good of mankind. What about your own kind? How long will you get? I don't know. Ten years. You could have told me. We could have dealt with it together. You married young. I had to marry. I had to marry. It was love. <laughs> he is not a thief. He borrowed your Goya to do a bit of good in this world. <laughs> campaign for pensioners and war veterans. Every time someone gets cut off from the rest of us, this country becomes a foot shorter. All my life I've looked out for other people and got into trouble for it. But I had faith. Not in God, but in people. How do you plead? Not guilty. Yes! For those unfamiliar with court proceedings, that was the plea, not the verdict. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredibly warm and it's, it's very enjoyable and I highly recommend you, you go and see it. Just before we go, just one piece of advice that you'd give your younger self uh, if you were going back in time. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I think that um, it it's, would be to kind of keep living <laughs> in that I, I've always been so incredibly 
focused on work, but what I've realized as I've, you know, had, I've had kids and I've gotten older and I've found other interests is that it's actually all of those things that make my work more interesting and that I kind of put into the stories that I want to tell and the people that I want to work with. Life feeds into everything. Exactly. Don't forget to sort of, uh, smell the roses i suppose amazing well thank you it's been an absolute pleasure nikki and uh yeah go and see the film great thanks so much dom lovely to chat to you lovely have a great day thank you bye bye as most of you know this week's podcast is sponsored by soldo and as it happens last week tobias informed you all that he had spoken to Teddy, the accountant, who is using Soldo for his latest film. Have you got an update for us, Tobias? Yeah, you can't believe what happened. Wow. It's incredible. He managed to attach Ryan Gosling to his film. That's incredible! Yes! In a film called The Accountant. Hang on, hang on. Isn't there a film called The Accountant already starring Ben Affleck? Yes, but Teddy's film is called Accountant. Only Accountant. Yeah. Oh, so he yeah. took the the he off. He took the the off, yeah. So. Brilliant. So it totally worked. He's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. Speaking of him being smart, because he's using Soldo, as most of you know, but some of you don't, so I'll fill you in, Soldo combines smart company cards with a comprehensive management platform, which means you can empower your employees and departments to pay and control every penny with custom budgets. And uh, you can get three months free I still got it wrong. And you get three months for free using the promo code FilmmakersPod. That is amazing. Did you read it actually? The script? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have notes. I'll give you them next week. For now though, do go check out the link in the the show notes for soldo.com. Right, let's get back to our lovely guest. So that was Nikki. Oh my gosh, Dom. Wow. I'm pretending I just listened to it. I clearly <laughs> didn't. We're still recording in the same intro section. <laughs> it was a great chat. Really, really good. It was really good. And you did really well as, as um, solo host, Dom. Congratulations, you. Thank you. Next, you chatted to the screenwriters of The Duke, Richard Bean and Clive Coleman. Tell me about that. We certainly duked it out. We discussed the process. (laughs) We discussed the process of co-writing, putting together treatments, adapting a novel, and working across different mediums of writing and parallel career progression. Ooh, that sounds like an intellectual chat. It was. Did you feel out your depth? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Uh, As an as an intellectual screenwriters out there, you're going to learn from two absolute legends of the writing game, and the fact that they're moving massively into uh, screenwriting Mm. now is huge. They've got other films coming out, and the Duke is. It's marvellous. It's marvellous. Let's get to Dom uh, hosting again with the two fantastic screenwriters, Richard Bean and Clive Coleman. The Duke is out in cinemas. Do watch it. Nice to meet you both. Welcome to the uh, the Filmmakers Podcast. We watched the film last week. It was an absolute pleasure. How's the press tour been going for you guys so far and seeing it on the screen at last? Massive relief. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a two-year wait, hasn't it, really? Yeah. Mm. Been in lockdown. That film has been in lockdown for nearly two years, so we're just thrilled that it's finally out. Amazing. How did it all begin for you? Because it was, it was based on a story, is that correct? Yeah, we got a phone call from um, Pate, uh, asking us to come for a meeting. I think they'd had a script 
I think it was a script. Do you think it was a script, Clive, or was it a treatment or something? They'd had to, so the history is that um, I think that Chris Bunton, who was Kempton's grandson, mm. had written the script. Um, that that hadn't, uh, you know, for whatever reason, what wasn't wasn't right. And then another writer, I think, also wrote a script. We've never seen, obviously, either of these uh, previous scripts for legal reasons. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but they obviously felt that they wanted to, you know, to, to to get some other writers to have a crack at it. And we were, well, in fact, they were really they came to you, Richard, and we'd just written a play together, uh, Young Marks, which um, was at that point literally just about to go on and open Sir Nicholas Heitner's new theatre, the Bridge Theatre. Um, wow. That was in October 2017. And Richard said... <laughs> Do you fancy do you know, writing this with me? It's got a big courts element to it, big court scene. And I said, yeah, please. I've bit his hands, I've bit both of his hands off. You absolutely can't go wrong with a court scene. I mean, that's uh, it's always uh, it's always a sort of a, a fan favourite. So, how did it sort of begin with your process from getting the idea? Did you have to speak to the family as a sort of first port of call, or did you try to look into the research side of things? Yeah, well, the um, most of the research, had, the groundwork of the research, had been done by Nikki Benson, the producer. So, mm. uh, when we went into Pathé, we were meeting with Nikki Benson. Uh, of Neon Films uh, and Cameron McCracken. Uh, and Nikki had a pile of uh, research materials, including the whole of Kempton's prison memoirs, which uh, were absolutely fascinating uh, because they were written, uh, they were a complete uh, lie. The whole memoir was a complete lie. Well, not a complete lie, because yeah. obviously once he got to the events, the mendacity uh, kicked in. But his personal biography and family biography were there and also his plays uh, mm. uh nicky had six or seven of his plays and also a lot of family research so we started there we didn't meet i didn't meet chris bunson until i went to new york so he works as a it consultant in new york there were also within the papers that we had there were some witness statements from the trial. There were some uh, excerpts of uh, from the transcript of the trial and other legal papers relating to the case. So that was that was very very helpful. Um, and there's a chapter on the court case in Hutchinson's book, isn't there? The barrister. Yeah, it's a book about Hutchinson. Yeah, um, Thomas Grant QC's book, Case Histories. Um, uh, which are the cases that Jeremy Hutchinson appeared in, and that was that was one of the ones. And you know, obviously, uh, it, it was one of the things that, that you know people, e even having seen the film, may not appreciate is that the trial was so extraordinary that it actually led the government to change the law of theft because you know a quintessential element of theft is that you intend to deprive the other person of whatever property you're alleged to have stolen. Mm. Um, and Hutchinson ran this completely audacious defence uh, that there was no intention to deprive effectively that he borrowed the painting in order to raise money for charity. Well, you know, if that had become a, a defence that juries were going to, um, to swallow then on a regular basis, then in relation to objects that are on public disp display in particular, then anyone could basically borrow one for the weekend, as the judge said in his summing up, just to impress the members of the Rotary Club. So they amended in, in a later act, um, they created a criminal offence of removing a public, uh, an, an object from public display um, to, to plug the, the hole that Captain yeah. Bunton had, had cannonballed through 
through the criminal law. I mean, it was an extraordinary defence to, to come out with and, and, you know, amazing that he was able to, to convince a jury. But I mean, it's, it sounds like he was the kind of character that was that was quite able to do that. I mean, how, how did you try to hone down what the, the core kind of important story elements uh, were? Because there was a lot of fascinating stuff. I mean, Nicky was saying that there's there's a lot in that you weren't able to put into the script. So how did you sort of pick and choose what, what was going to go into the story and making it ready for screen? Yeah, we, we started off by doing a treatment and we took a kind of heist uh, approach, which we were anxious about. Mm. We asked for a meeting before we did too much work. Uh, and again, Nikki and Cameron said they really didn't want to go down the heist route, uh, which was a really good meeting to have because we were uh, able to change tack and do more of a kind of family mm. uh, drama and concentrate on the more human aspects. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the first good, uh, correct turning that we did on the, on the road, as it were. Mm. Yeah, I think they were very keen that the, uh, and I think that they were right, that the family drama was the sort of emotion beating kind of emotional heart of the film. Um, and that was, it was critical that we, you know, we got, or we corrected ourselves somewhat and then in, in discussion with with them um, realised that. And I think they also, they kind of, Kempton was already a great character because, you know, you read two or three things about Kempton, you realise you've got a fantastic comic creation on your hands but um dorothy with there was very very little known about her really and even in the documents we received there was almost nothing um and so that's where we've had to be kind of at our most inventive i i guess and also i think they wanted a part kind of fit for a dame which we tried tried to create and eventually a dame said yes they do up, yeah <laughs> so, and what so, a dame. So, so did you did you have to sort of um with that character did you have to go back to the family or was there sort of creative license given to you where it was kind of going through the, the producer side of things what, what was the groundwork for that without the without the information because it's, it's an interesting one from a, a writer's perspective on how you adapt something that isn't there in a in a true story yeah that was the stickiest bit of research really wasn't it because we we went back and back and we found out we found really very little information about dorothy um apart from that she was uh, had an irish connection and so we went back and tried to find out if she was protestant or catholic and we couldn't even find that out it was the uh, jackie who uh, Jackie Bunton, who's still alive? Uh, I, I don't. I think the family were slightly protecting Jackie, and he didn't want to yeah. get too, too involved in the research and stuff. So he would have been the one who obviously knew all about Dorothy. So we we worked from that point of view. I, th I think we largely a, an Irish connection and, and worked as a cleaner and yeah, built it from there. Sorry, Claire. No, I was just going to say, I, I yeah, I mean those those small details we had. I think we. You know, emotionally, we built the character around the fact that, um, you know, they'd lost their daughter. Yeah, that was a really powerful storyline, actually. She was in the after, you know, the after stages, aftermath, whatever, of, of grief, which had never really been dealt with in those days. Mm. You know, grief wasn't dealt with in the way it's dealt with now. So I think that was a very powerful element. And also, you know, she had this husband who must have been, although, you know, charming in many ways utterly <laughs> utterly infuriating yeah, yeah. so yeah. i think those were the sort of 
kickoff points yeah. for, for yeah, the, the ground the groundwork. And and was it the same for the the children and the sort of supporting cast as well? We knew a bit more. Kenny with the the, the, the other brother we knew was a, a bit of a bad one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, you know, that, that, that was very helpful. Um, we knew Jackie, Jackie had criminal convictions later on, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. But we knew about his boat building. We knew that he, that was his ambition and that that's what he loved doing. In fact, we had a, we had this scene at the beginning, which we were really reluctant when they, Roger Michelle said, nah, don't need that. Um, but we started the, we're going to start the film. We thought in this incredibly cinematic way with Jackie Bunton leaving at the factory, you know, he gets on his motorbike. You don't know where he's going. He drives through you know, Newcastle down to the banks of the Tyne, down a slip road, gets off his bike, strips down to his underpants gets into the time and swims across the time to a, a concrete pontoon in the middle, middle of the time. time. Yeah. Which is where he had his boats. Oh, and wow. It was a fantastic opening. Mm. And I think it was just a bit expensive. Yeah. And we didn't make that up. That Chris Bunton said he used to swim yeah. to the middle of the time to work on his boats. Can you imagine? Mm. <laughs> Roger <laughs> Michelle thought, well, that's going to be a bit difficult. I mean, I mean, it, it it just sounds like this whole this whole family had so many incredible anecdotes, and and it's it's interesting how how the sort of the directions. There's not necessarily wrong directions. It's just different directions that that make a script uh, so incredibly different. You know, like moving from the heist into the drama and. Uh, how you open the film it's it's always a, a very important thing so once you'd sort of got to this this research stage how how does your collaboration work in terms of approaching that first draft for instance between you standard film technique we were we wrote uh, an extensive treatment maybe um 30 page treatment with 100 scenes and then you shove it in front of the headmaster you know cameron mccracken and nikki bentham and they mm. They give notes, you go away, you rewrite it. When everyone's agreed on the treatment, um, you start the script. And when Clive and I work together, it's great fun. We do a line of dialogue. Uh, Clive doesn't like the line of dialogue. He changes it. And then I don't like his line of dialogue and I change it back. And then we have a game of table tennis and um, there's tears. uh, (laughs) uh, And in the end, we've rewritten the line 10 times and we like to think that's like writing you know we all know that writing is rewriting and mm. we do it in a kind of durch technic way so we we do it in a kind of structured way the mm. writing as it were line by line i mean we literally write every line together pretty much right okay um, um which is you know and we've written plays together where we haven't done that we've sort of yeah. blocked scenes and and done them individually and then sent them but actually with with film, because actually the camera does so much work for you, and, and you know, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, there is so little dialogue compared with the you know the kind of plays that are full of big arias and all that sort of stuff. Um, we've just found it a really effective way to get to a better product quicker mm-hmm. by sitting. So you know, you you kind of go through six drafts before a word hits the page. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's you know, we basically um, you know, apart from the arguing, we do sit around a room, you know, making each other laugh. It, um, most of the time, and, uh, and and I think you know, really, both people have to have the right of veto. You know, I think there's a sort of exception to that. You know, if you know, if someone really is going to die on a hill, Richard's favourite phrase for a line. You know, my get out is look. If Richard Bean thinks it's funny and he's thought it's funny for the last three hours, 
then it's funny. Yeah, well, you know, because actually, you know, you, you, you're wrong about these things. I don't think if either of us has an incredibly strong gut instinct that's a great line or it's going to get a great big laugh, then we we go with it. We One of us gives in even if they have a few misgivings about it. And almost always the person who really believes in it was right. It's a fascinating way to, to co-write. I mean, you can you can kind of divide up scenes or you can work very much together. And it, it sounds like this is a real sort of collaboration where you're you know almost pulling the same vision, you know, bouncing off each other and, and chipping away at, at it as it goes. I mean, you know, really, there are lines in most of the lines in, the, in this film. You know, so, some of the words are Richard, and some of the words are mine. You know, we've we've really worked that closely on the mm. you know, on on each each line, pretty pretty much. There is also a little bit in our biographies that helps, especially for a film like this, because I do the Northern Losers, don't I? And you do the you know, Portugal Barristers. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, one way or another, yeah. Richard, Richard, I've spent a lot of time as a barrister and as a journalist covering mm. the law, you know, and, and mixing with a lot of, you know, sort of senior lawyers and and, and ministers and, 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 you know, whatnot. Um, so... I, I kind of hear those voices in my head the whole time as Richard, Richard, you know, I think Spent a lot of time in bakeries <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sitting on park benches in Hull, you know, picking up bits of dialogue. <laughs> so once you got the, the first draft together, um, what was the sort of process with the collaboration with, you know, the producer, the director, Pathé, were there many notes? What's your sort of process once you get a draft in terms of evaluation and, uh, polishing and how it changes. Yeah, well, we kind of send it in and then there's a meeting and at the meeting there'd be a dramaturg and Nikki Bentham again and Cameron McCracken again and we get notes from them. We argue if we feel like arguing, but mostly we take the notes, go away and rewrite and then another draft goes in. After that stage, the next stage is getting a director on board, which um, mm. was a little bit trickier and not really our task. Didn't we have a director, Clive, who was a bit disappointed that we hadn't gone down the heist route? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. I mean, we, yeah, but, you know, we, we one thing to just, just in relation to what Rishi's just said, I, I do think with this, you know, we got a series of notes, you know, maybe four or five sets of notes. And actually, every time Cameron always used to say, you know, oh, well, my well, my notes really awful, you know. Um, but actually, they were always very good notes, and mm. the script kept on getting better and better. And I think we all knew that. So it, it was actually an incredibly happy working experience. It isn't. It isn't always like that. And so that process, I think, went about as quickly as you can go. Because I mean, gun to tape from the first meeting we had with Patho to the film going into production was under two and a half years. Mm. You know, which in film terms is really isn't that long. No. Um, and part of that was a hiatus with another director where the film was sort of held up for a, for a while um, and then he was not available to do it. So mm. really it was two years, actually. Once Roger came on board, you know, yeah. Roger become, became the sort of captain of the ship mm. immediately. And in fact, the first meeting he had with us, you know, we, he he said, "Oh, great script, guys!" And we thought, "Oh, great. we'll be in and out of this meeting in five minutes." And, he, and then he said, "But um, story starts thirty pages too late." <laughs> right. So we got our next set of notes. From yeah, a big set of notes. Yeah, yeah, a big set of notes. And he cut the swimming scene, of course, as well. Yeah. So, so how did how did that kind of front end change once once Roger had got got on board? Then scenes that I think we had put in that had, we thought, great kind of family texture. And there was more of Kempton doing stuff in his community, you know, the kind of campaign speaking at a council meeting, you know, that kind of thing. You know, and they got cut and actually, you know, 
he was right and we were wrong. I mean, mm. you, you know, he had that director's eye for the economy of story, of, of, of mm. telling a story. And, um, you know, I don't really miss any of those scenes no, now. I, 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 I slightly miss pavements for pedestrians. Yeah, that was one, <laughs> that was one uh, of his campaigns. <laughs> but we can use that in something else. So just going back a little bit to how you guys got started in, in the industry. We met years and years oh, ago. Oh, God, yeah. So mm. in like, you know, 1991, 92. 91, 92. We, yeah. we right. were both trying to get going as comedy writers in, in BBC Radio Live entertainment right and um richard was also doing stand-up at the time and i was i just stopped being a barrister i was teaching barristers mm. um, in order to, which was a job that gave me a lot of spare time to write and i was writing um I got, I got on a scheme that radio light entertainment had called the contract writers scheme where you kind of put on the staff for a year and you write for you know shows like weekending and the news headlines and richard yeah. was also writing for weekending and um, a producer called Colin Swash, who went on to produce Have I Got News For You and be its chief writer for many years, um, he he wanted to do a sketch show and he put the two of us together. Right. And, um, we brought in another friend of ours called Andy Clifford, and we did two series of a show called Control Group 6. And how, how did those kind of early, early jobs inform your writing process? Did you kind of... Did you start by just learning other people? Or did you go through the sort of the the writing process yourself? Just interested in how you got started, really. It's We've funny, isn't it? Because um, the sketches, you tended to write the sketches for Control Group 6 with Andy hmm. a bit more. And I was writing on my own more, wasn't I? Hmm. And then we, when we got together, we fine-tuned all the sketches and stuff. And then, but once Control Group 6 was over and I was sick of doing stand-up, um, I started writing theatre, so I've had a career in as a playwright, I guess you would say. Um, mm. You, you wrote, went on to write Chambers, the sitcom for television, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a sitcom, was on radio for three series on Radio 4, and then it did two, two on telly. It was just, I was a barrister, and that's what I knew about, and I'd always seen barristers as being, you know, in spite of the sort of seeming grandeur of the courtroom is sort of venal and avaricious and desperate and sweaty yeah. as anyone else. So that was kind of what Chambers was about, you know, the, the most venal, avaricious, um, you know, lazy, duplicitous uh, barrister in the world, played by yeah. John Bird, um, who you always quite like because the system was often a bit worse than he was. Um, but um, yeah, I, I did that. And then I, that went to telly, did two series on telly. And then it and then it wasn't recommissioned. It was a bit like falling off a cliff. And I did mm. work for the bill. Um, I did a bit of drama writing, but yeah. And then I had three big projects, all of which looked like absolute, you know, certs for telly. One big one with Dawn French uh, for Tiger Aspect. Um, and you know, sitting in a room for a long time, you know, ripping my hair out, producing these things. And for various reasons, none of them happened. And mm. and I sort of slightly thought my writing days were behind me i i then happened into journalism and i you know, became i uh, was presenting a program on radio 4 and then i became the legal correspondent and in 2013 richard was taken out for a beer i think by kelvin mckenzie mm. who wanted him to write a jerry spring of the opera rupert murdoch the musical right and i was very heavily involved covering the phone hacking scandal um at that point and we got talking and talking and talking and i said no this is a just a, a massive national scandal and Richard had a big commission at the National Outstanding and sort of said, well, why don't you come along and have a meeting with Nick Heitner? 
And we went to that meeting and I knew a lot about that story. And it was an extraordinary story about our, our culture and our, our national character and how we pride ourselves on the, you know, that Great Britain's this country with this kind of gold standard of integrity that runs through all its institutions and mm. how phone hacking was kind of ramming that hypocrisy down everyone's throat. And um, we spoke to Nick Heinler for about an hour and he just said, fine, go and start writing it. <laughs> so, so we so got that. that, was that after, so that was the first time we got back together writing after mm. 30 years, isn't it? So you'd mm. done your sitcoms and whatever and journals. Yeah. I'd written I mean, 28 I, stage plays. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a sort of a fascinating story, really, and, and it kind of shows that the people, I mean, at the moment you're you're writing a, a top, you know, film that's, that's sort of out on the circuit, uh, and even you guys have been through moments when you've taken sort of side routes in your, your careers, and you've had, you know, time going into different different things, so it's, uh, it's all kind of life experience, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've written three film scripts and been mm. commissioned to write film scripts. Uh, three that haven't been good enough to to, to be made. Um, yeah, which is part. I mean, I wrote those on my own, and I think that's you know part of the reason why me and Clive writing together is a good thing because uh, each other's faults. Can I put it that way? Each other's faults and what's the word? Collectively, a strength. Together. Yeah, yeah, we can we mm. can spot them and sandpaper the edges a bit. I also think actually, you know, Richard had been writing plays on his own in a shed for 20 years and I think yeah. he was going a bit bonkers and actually just, just needed some company and I was lucky I was I was there at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I, think, I think I got, in all fairness, I think I, I got Richard at a great time and I think he got me at quite a good time because I'd done 10 years as yeah. the BBC legal correspondent and you know, that also a, going mad. Is that slightly, slightly going mad. You know, having mad, collectively mad starts. genius. Yeah, five a.m. for the Today program. Um, boy, was I not sad to see the end of those. Um, but it had taken me to so many interesting areas. Yeah, um, of society, the law, you know, nationally and internationally. And so there was a lot of, in fact, one of the projects we're just about to kick off on was one that um, really comes from coverage that I did of, um, you know, as, as news stories, which we're now turning mm. into, into drama. So I think we could just, you know, sometimes, the you know, things, you just cross paths at the right time. And I think we did. Yeah. And it's all very, very varied and valuable experience that, that obviously is fed into this perfectly to align at just the right time there's a lot of living that we've both done that mm. we can feed into it's all yeah there's plenty of anecdotes in the room aren't there yeah and did you always know that you were kind of aiming for for film i mean you obviously sort of went through theater and, and tv was there a sort of a clear goal there or was it just as life threw you in those directions i never i mean i really enjoyed writing the the, the two plays you know we, we we've done mm. um but I was really fascinated by screen writing for the screen. And, you know, when I, you know, back in the day when I was writing gags for, you know, I was reading kind of voraciously about, you know, all the, you know, the William Goldman books and Sidfield and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I just, I always felt that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, I, I, write dialogue, you know, but in a, a narrative form where the camera is doing a lot of work for you. And I was great movie buff as well. Uh, whereas I think Richard's, you know, he, his writing was rooted in theatre. Mm. And, you know, and obviously he's done, what, 30 or odd plays. Um, yeah. So, so we were coming at it from, I think, slightly different perspective Do you, is that fair richard yeah i think it's absolutely fair I and mean, i think uh one of one of my skills 
uh, as a playwright is I, I pride myself on thinking I know exactly where the audience is at any given moment and what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Mm. Uh, and I find that a bit more difficult with film because the audience in film is, it's not necessarily a collective experience. I, when I go to the cinema, I'm quite pleased when I'm on my own in a full, full row of empty seats. If that was the theatre, I'd be very disappointed and wondering why am I here and no one else is here. Is yeah. there something about this play that no one's told me? So, uh, and it's just, uh, how many years I've been writing theatre? 20, 20, 99, what was it? 20, 21, 22 years I've been writing theatre and I, I feel as if I know where the audience is. And I, 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 don't, I don't know that with film. And mm. Yeah, the other I'm thing learning. that, that Richard... That, you know, Rich is probably sick of me kind of expanding my, my great theory of film, but, you know, I can do it in a couple of sentences. But basically, you know, my it, sim, put simply, it's that people don't go to the cinema thinking that the, what they want is a really rigorous intellectual workout. But the fact is that is exactly what they want. Mm. And, you know, you're, that's why you're giving them minimal amounts of information often because you're you're generating you know their imaginations to, to make connections and to you know and that's probably also slightly different with with theater not that there isn't of course suspense and hidden knowledge yeah. in theater but in, in film is particularly the case and yeah. you know so we're constantly or maybe me more than richard saying you know no let's take that out take that out because you know you never tell it the story in a, a linear yeah. way yeah. you know yeah. you're yeah. constantly taking information out that the audience then has to fill in it for. Yeah. Themselves. It's leaving just the right gap, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Just one last uh, question for, for both of you as short as possible. If you had any advice for young writers starting out or you as a young writer looking back on your career in terms of getting started. I would say don't write what you think is fashionable or whatever, but write the play or write the film that you want to see. Mm, and I'd say keep turning up, just keep going. <laughs> because I thought my writing career was over several times. And, you know, guess what? It, 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 well, hopefully it, it isn't. <laughs> no, and, and now you've got a poster with some nice stars on the, the back behind you. So I think that's proof, proofs in the pudding. Again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you both for your time. And um, we'll uh, look forward to getting it out to the audiences. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Lovely. John. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening. You are amazing. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday as always. Take care. Go out there and make your film. Bye-bye. Under the covers, under the boardwalk. Down by the sea I'm with a filmmaker named Dom Lenoir And he likes to be Under the boardwalk Down by the sea Ooh. Yeah Can we, can we start now? <laughs> we hope you liked today's episode. If you want to hear more, visit our Patreon for bonus clips and exclusive content.